Welcome to Eagle. Welcome to the first Sunday of Lent. How many of you grew up practicing the Lenten season in your households? Just a show of hands. So we have a few Lenten veterans around here. So it was the year 325 when the church got together and decided we ought to prepare our hearts for Easter. We can't just rush into it. So the Council of Nicaea in 325 said we want to set aside a six-week period of preparation centered around self-denial, confession, simplicity, and kind of all around this banner of spiritual renewal. I want you to think of the Lent season like a time to examine the condition and direction of your inmost being. How are things going inside here? And that's the whole concept of the Lent season. Well, this past week, I had my first chest x-ray. Not something you really want to have, right? But I'm grateful it was 54 years before I had a chest x-ray. I've, like many of you, been battling all kinds of upper respiratory stuff that just wasn't getting better. And um, Kendra knew how bad it was getting when I turned to her sometime early last week and said, honey, I made an appointment to see the doctor. (laughs) She gave me the side eye, like, oh gosh, you must be close to dead. Like, you know, I think she said maybe in the 31 years of our marriage, she's heard that twice. So I went and saw the doctor. He's like, you need a chest x-ray. I go in to see the technician, and she says, okay, here's how this works. Like, you go stand against this big wall device thing, put your arms here, thrust it, deep breath, hold your breath, picture. Awesome. And then she says, turn to the left, hands above the head, deep breath, hold your breath, picture. And then technician comes out. She looks at the screen. She goes, all right, Mr. Simpson, we have some amazing, clear pictures of what's going on in those lungs of yours for the doctor to take a look at later. When she said that, I thought, you know, kind of what a chest x-ray is to February in Indiana, the Lenten season is like a six-week x-ray examination of your inmost being. It's for us and with God's help to say, what's going on in there? Do we have a clear picture of the condition and direction of the soul, of the heart? That's what we're going to look at today. I entitled today a heart exam because the Bible makes some unbelievable declarations about the heart. And so if you haven't already pulled out your note sheet, please do so. Online hosts can direct you accordingly. I got several passages there on the front side of the note sheet. Just a little bit of a a biblical overview and theology of the heart. Listen to some of these statements. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. What a statement. Do you believe that? Like everything you do flows out of the condition and direction of what the Bible calls your heart. Or how about Proverbs 27? As a face is reflected in water, so the heart reflects the real person. So Solomon says, hey, this here is a reflection of what's going on in here. Wow. Or how about Proverbs 21? Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. For Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord doesn't see the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Ezekiel 36, 
26. This is quoted in the New Testament, talking about when Jesus comes, fulfills the covenant. He says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 2 Chronicles 16, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Or how about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount? He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Or Mike and Susan read our teaching text, Luke 6, 45. The last sentence says, what you say flows from what is in your heart. Or Jesus later on, Matthew 9, 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Or he says in Mark 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And finally, Romans 10.10, Paul says, for with the heart one believes and is justified. Dallas Willard summarizes this theology of the heart this way, the human heart, will, or spirit is the executive center of a human life. The heart is where decisions and choices are made for the whole person. So this morning, real simple question for us to reflect on this morning. How are things with your heart? Or maybe better said with the Australian pastors, only Australian pastors could say it this way, how are things with your heart? That's the more robust way, right? Not like at Midwesterners, you got it, you're just stuck with me, heart. How, how are things in here? What's going on in here? You see, a modern secular society has two primary ways that it addresses the human heart, education and legislation. Education, teach them more stuff. Legislation, pass more laws to try to rein in where the heart wants to go. Now listen, all education and legislation, important. They can affect our lives in a number of ways. Important things that happen in our education and legislation systems. I just want to argue that they are woefully insufficient to address the fundamental change needed in the human heart. You cannot educate your way or legislate your way to a new heart. And that's really what the Bible says humans need, that we're born into a condition where you need a new heart. An explanation on how a massive celebration in Kansas City for a Super Bowl parade with a million plus people attending, how could it turn from a celebration to another instance of terror and fear and a mass shooting? How does that happen? And as you read the articles this week, I read the security officials basically declaring that they couldn't marshal enough troops to rein in a million people. They said, you can't metal detect a million people. You can't guarantee the safety of a million plus people when they gather. Because the fundamental change needed to prevent mass shootings from occurring isn't an educate or legislate, it's a fundamental change of the heart. The human heart must be impacted. That's why if you interact with any law enforcement officer and you ask them about the return visits to the certain households in the community, they keep going back to the same address over and over and over. And they can apply some external pressure, right? Sometimes they can arrest 
a person in the household, take him away, send him to some kind of jail sentence, mandatory counseling. They can do those things, important things. But when all those external pressures are removed, the tendency is you regress back often to the same behavior. Because the best that education and legislation can do is apply external pressure. And the Bible says there has to be a fundamental change in the human heart. Dallas put it this way. I put this quote in your notes. Those with a well-kept heart are persons who are prepared for and capable of responding to the situations of life in ways that are good and right. Their will functions as it should to choose what is good and avoid what is evil. And the other components of their nature cooperate to that end. So Eagle Church, I ask you, how are things with your heart? We're going to do a little heart exam, and we're going to look at three different kind of diagnostics in the Scriptures for conditions of the heart. And the first one the Bible describes is what's called a divided heart. So we're going to look at a divided heart. Jesus put it this way, Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is him getting at the condition of the divided heart. And the Bible word for a divided heart is idolatry. That's the Bible word for it. Listen to David Powelson's quote on idolatry. He says, an idol is anything to which we attach desires, expectations, affections, devotion, and dependence that properly belong to God. You see, those words are vocabulary that belongs to God. And when we map them onto something else, it's called an idol. The language of love, trust, fear, hope, seeking, serving, terms describing a relationship to the true God is continually utilized in the Bible to describe our false loves, false trusts, false fears, false hopes, false pursuits, and false masters. You see, God's not petty and He's not insecure. He's passionate. He doesn't want to share His love with anyone or anything else. He gave His all on the cross, and He is expecting a return of the whole of our lives embodied with our whole heart. That's what God's after. And out of love, He calls us to examine this condition of a divided heart because He knows what happens. A divided heart can drive your life to a place of exhaustion, can move you to a place that is so unhealthy on the inside, says you don't want to go down that road. Tim Keller says his diagnostic tool, as only Keller can do it, he summarizes it in a really short sentence when he says, here's my, Keller says, here's my diagnostic for idolatry of the heart. Quote, life only has meaning and I only have worth if. There's idolatry right there. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if. Has anything kind of snuck in the back door of the heart and kind of set itself up as a competitor or as a rival to God? Have you mapped the loves of your life kind of onto the wrong things? Saying things like, if I could just push to that next salary level, it's all, that's where it'll be. If I could just start that business, if I could just finally meet my person, if I could build a family, if I could drop a few pounds and feel better about myself when I look in the mirror, if I could just get that person in my life that is irritating the daylights out of me, if I could just get them to stop 
Finish the sentence. If I could take that vacation, if I could launch that ministry, on and on and goes. If, if, if that tension you're feeling, the exhaustion you're experiencing, it could be that an idol has snuck into the heart and set itself up and is asking you to bow down and pay respect and homage to it. It's called a divided heart. Which is why the Scripture says in Psalm 86.11, this, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. So how are things with your heart? Are there some divided places in the inmost being? The second condition, the second diagnostic of the heart, the Bible describes as a broken or wounded heart. Psalm 147 puts it this way, the Lord heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. There's so much space in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that's reserved for Jesus basically dealing with people's wounded hearts. A few I put in your notes, I believe. So John chapter 4, there's a Samaritan woman at the well, and she encounters Jesus in a way, and there's like a racial and cultural healing because Jesus basically says Samaritans are included in the kingdom of God. That was unheard of in Jesus' day. They were outcasts. The Jews said if a Samaritan's shadow touched you, you were contaminated. And so Jesus steps on the scene and brings a cultural and a racial healing. He says, Samaritans, you're included in what I'm doing here on the earth, building the kingdom of God. John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. He brings an emotional healing, meeting her in her shame. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go leave your life of sin. Matthew chapter 8, remember the man caught with leprosy. There's a social and a physical healing. He touches those who seemed and perceived to be untouchable. That's Jesus. And then Mark chapter 3, he deals with the man with the shriveled hand, and he does it on the Sabbath day. So he heals him on a day which impacts religious healing and physical healing. On and on you could go through the Gospels. Just pay attention as you're reading it, which is why Henry Nouwen called Jesus in his really well-written book, The Wounded Healer. That's our Savior, The Wounded Healer. Because there's all kinds of layers to the wounds of the heart. There's relational wounds. Some of you have gone through the trauma of a divorce and a fractured family, or if you lost a job, or a roommate, or a friendship has just shattered into pieces, and it's the relational wounds that come from fracturing in that way. There's emotional wounds. You get emotional wounds like guilt, shame, regret, bullying, abuse, grief, loss. Some of you have encountered saying goodbye to a loved one recently, and the grief just kind of comes and sits like a cloud over your heart. It's this emotional wound of the heart of losing a loved one. Or there's physical wounds. There's injuries to our physical body that affect our heart. Like you live with chronic pain. You have this failing health. You just go from one doctor to the next, one discouraging and disappointing report to the next, and the cumulative effect is the physical failing of a body that's wounding your heart. And then perhaps one of the most difficult of all is religious wounds. The religious wounds are also known as church hurt. In my lifetime, I've experienced more tangible wounds of the heart within the body of Christ, from members who call themselves brothers and sisters. That's what the Bible calls Christian community, your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And the wounds that are inflicted, inflicted in a church context can be deeply hurtful. And let me just say, if, if I or we have done anything as a church to wound or hurt you, we are deeply sorry, and that is never our intent. But here's the reality. When you get hundreds of people, hundreds of wounded people together in close proximity, you have wounding, wounded people wounding people. That's a reality of what happens, and it's our desire that this can be a place where your wounded heart, even if it's a church hurt or a religious hurt, that it can be seen, it can be known, it can be healed. That's our desire. We want to be that kind of a place. So there's relational wounds, there's emotional wounds, there's physical wounds, and then there's religious wounds. And some of you are here today, and if you were honest, your assessment, the x-ray is showing you are living with a deeply wounded heart. And it is affecting not just you, it is affecting all the relational worlds around you. A parent said something to you when you were young and it pierced your heart as a young person. Or a distant relative took advantage of you and abused you and then swore you to silence and you've lived with that in fear for years and years and years. A relationship you were convinced was headed somewhere ends up in the land of nowhere. Or a dream was shattered that you invested so much time and energy in. Or circumstances that are outside of your control seem to continue to like rampage against your heart and you're just exhausted from the battle. It's the broken or wounded heart and the promise from Psalm 147 is God heals the broken heart and He binds up their wounds. So how are things with your heart? Are there some divided places? Are there some wounded places? And then thirdly, the last diagnostic from the word is it's called the hardened heart. And perhaps one of the best examples in the scriptures of a hardened heart is the king of Babylon in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar. He's reigning and ruling over the kingdom of Babylon. He gets to a point where he stands here in D Daniel chapter 4. He says, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar says, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Do you see, you might want to underline your Bible, I and my there. That's the vocabulary of a hardened heart, me, my, and I. That's the vocabulary. The posture of the hardened heart is a defiance towards anything or anyone who wants to kind of violate the sovereignty of self. That's the posture. So the vocabulary is me, my, and I. The posture is anything that wants to bring a defiance to the sovereignty of self. And then the consequences, perhaps most sobering, the consequence of the hardened heart is that it contaminates everyone it comes into contact with. It touches everything and everyone around you. And the Bible says the eternal destiny of the hardened heart, First or Second Thessalonians 1 says, it's shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His majesty. That's a sobering line for the hardened heart. There's a lot at stake with what's going on in here. Which is why the New Testament says things like this. Hebrews chapter 3 says, verse 7, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. There's a lot at stake. Or Hebrews 3 verse 12 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away 
from the living God. The Bible basically says, how arrogant is it of us as humans to think you just kind of sprung into the middle of a universe you didn't create, and you can just live however you want to live with no consequence at all. There's a word the Bible attaches for that kind of philosophy of life. It's called foolish. It's foolish to treat your one and only life that way. Because the Bible says you're made for someone. You're made to give yourself to someone, to be wholehearted for someone. And he's given you a free will. It's sobering to think you have a free will. You can take this free will and you can live with a divided, wounded, and hardened heart towards God. You can kind of push away the tugs and whispers of the Spirit. You can push away God. You can set up self and the kingdom of self as the sovereignty to me, myself, and I. You can actually live your one and only life that way. But a sobering question would be, what are you going to do with your heart? What's your plan? You can push God out of the picture with your free will, but what are you going to do with this? You say, I'm going to read some more books. I love books. I'm all for books. You're going to see some more counselors. I'm all for counselors. If so, I have seen a few through my years. Or maybe you're going to distract yourself with noise and activity so you don't have to think about these kinds of things. You're like, hey, Pastor Eric, I'm kind of had enough of this, like 20, 25 minutes of thinking about what's going on in here. I'm ready to move on. So you just slide on the noise, increase the distraction. One of my favorite monasteries to visit is the Abbey of Gethsemane down in Kentucky. They have the best website of all monasteries on the planet, www.monks.org. True. Can you picture all the other monasteries calling them saying, hey, we want your web address. They're the only ones, monks.org. Abbey of Gethsemane. If you know the name Thomas Merton, this was where Merton spent a good chunk of his latter part of his life when he did a lot of his writings. Well, when you show up at the Abbey of Gethsemane, you, you sign up for a minimum of four days. That's what they ask you to do. And you take a vow of silence. Now, some of you are having an allergic reaction right now when I say that. But you take a vow of silence to enter onto the property that way. And you can break the vow of silence by scheduling a spiritual direction conversation with one of the monks of which I did, and I got to sit down with Father Matthew, who had been there for 58 years, been praying the Psalms and working and silence. They make fudge and cheese at the Abbey of Gethsemane. That's how they fund their monastery. So they work together, make fudge and cheese, and then their prayer gatherings begin at 4.30 in the morning, and they have six prayer gatherings through the day. So they worship, and they pray, and they seek God, and they work. And so when I sat with Father Matthew, he calls us retreatants. That's what the monastery calls people guests, retreatants. He says, Eric, I want to tell you something about what I observed in his 58 years. He said in his 58 years, he watched many a retreatant in the middle of the night pack up their car and drive away. I said, why is that? He said, middle of the night. He says, it's usually on day two or three. I said, what is that? And then he said this. He said, Eric, it's all of the stuff going on inside in the inmost being. If you stay in the quiet, if you stay in the sacred space long enough, it starts rising to the surface. And if you don't want to deal with it, you pack up your bags, you get in your car, you slide on the headphones, and you turn up the noise. Right there. And for some of you, that's where you're at entering into the Lenten season. And so I want to ask you, 
for the next six weeks to join me in sitting before the Lord in this place of kind of a bit of holy tension and ask the Lord, how are things with my heart? What's going on in here? Is there a place, is it a divided heart? Are there some places, Tozer calls it like gnawing like rodents on the inside, clamoring for attention? Is there some places where you just feel the incongruence of what you believe and how you're choosing to live and that's just tearing you up and exhausting you on the inside? It's the divided heart. Or there's some wounded and broken places in the heart. Maybe this morning for the first time in a while you're kind of letting yourself go to a little bit deeper place and go, gosh, I didn't realize there's some things going on in here. I think I've got some internal bruising in the inmost place I think the Lord wants to deal with. Because it's affecting not just you, it's affecting all the people around you. Or perhaps more soberly, are there some hardened places in the heart? Have you been stiff-arming God, been pushing away the tugs and whispers of the Spirit? You've been just settling into a deeper resolve of self-reliance and I've got this and I know best, that whole thing right there. So I want to invite you, church, into a six-week journey of holding what I think perhaps might be one of the more important questions we hold before the Lord and before ourselves. How are things with your heart? And here's the Lenten invitation. Jesus steps in and he says, you bring your divided, your broken your wounded, your hardened heart. You bring that divided. You bring that wounded. You bring that broken. You bring that hardened heart to me, and I'll bring my healing grace to you. That's the invitation of Lent. You see, I've never met anyone who can deal with the human heart like Jesus. I believe Jesus has the power and resources to change fundamentally what needs to be changed in my life, and the life of anyone else. That's why I'm all in with Jesus. And you have to have a plan. Somewhere, if you don't choose Jesus, what's your plan for dealing with what's wrong in the heart? And I just want to lobby to say, I don't think you're going to educate your way, and I don't think you're going to legislate your way with fundamentally what needs to be changed here. So at the beginning of this Lenten season, I issue an invitation. Bring your whole heart before Jesus and ask Him. Ask Him to begin to bring an integration where there's division. Ask Him to bring a healing when there's been wounded. Ask Him to bring a softening when there's been hardening. Bring your whole life to Jesus. And He says, I'll bring my healing grace to you. That's the invitation of Lent. And this morning as we wrap up, worship team, why don't you come on back up. As we wrap up, I recognize a subject like this. You know, you might need some space this morning. Prayer benches are here. They're available for you. Maybe you need to come and kneel and spend some time before the Lord during this closing song and just kind of do some business with Him that way. This space is for you. Maybe you need a little more extended time. You might need to schedule some time in the prayer room. During this Lent season, maybe you just commit to take a little extra time and get in some quiet space in the prayer room. 
Or why don't you join us on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock for the next six Wednesday nights. That's what we're going to do during the Lent season. 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. We're going to gather out there in the atrium and we're going to spend an hour with the Lord before Him. We're going to worship. We're going to pray. We're going to sit in quiet. We're going to seek God and we're going to hold the question before Him. How are things with my heart, Lord? And we're going to heed His invitation where Jesus says, you bring your whole heart to me and I'll bring my healing grace to you. Let's pray. Jesus, there's no one like you. You alone possess the power and resources to fundamentally take a heart that is divided or wounded or hardened and heal it and make it new. And so would you come to each of us? You see right where we are. There's some people in some really difficult places in the heart. And would you minister to them? Would you meet them where they are? May this Lenten season, may it be a place where you lead us even to greater wholeness, a renewal of the heart, a renovation of the heart. That's what we're asking for. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.